Well, uh, me and my brother are five years apart, and uh, for whatever reason, when I was growing up, I loved to get my brother in trouble. Uh, I don't know if that's uh, just a sibling thing or if I was extraordinarily depraved, but I like to get him in trouble. And one day, I came up with this ingenious way to get him into trouble. Uh, I was in the kitchen with my brother. My mom was somewhere else in the house, and I'm not sure if my dad was there or not. But we were in the kitchen, and I told him, Michael, why don't you come over and pee on me? <laughs> and my brother, he's not one to back down from a challenge. Uh, if I remember right, it didn't take much persuasion. He came right over, and he peed on me. Amazingly, I was excited about this. Because now I got him. Now I'm going to get him in trouble. So I go to my parents, and I've got uh, pants on that are covered in urine. And I say, what are you going to do with him? He just peed on me. Punish him. And so my parents went and talked to my brother, and he explained that I had asked him to pee on me. And then my parents, in their wisdom, they decided not to punish them. And I came to them, I'm like, he peed on me, why don't you punish him? And they're like, well, you did ask him to do it. And then I'm like, so I just got peed on for no reason at all. And uh, so I was focused on getting my brother in trouble, and I didn't realize and didn't think about the fact that I was doing something that was far worse. I was trying to get my brother to do bad things. Probably should have just focused on what I was doing rather than on what my brother was doing. Well, I have to admit, we live in a culture where sometimes it's really hard to see a light at the end of the tunnel, where it's sometimes hard to have hope. I mean, sometimes I'll watch the news, and after watching the news, I'm just like sad, angry, depressed, and just feel like there's not a lot we can do. I feel kind of hopeless and helpless. You know, we look at our culture, and it's almost like in the last five, maybe even less than five years, it's like we've become two different countries. I mean, you talk to Democrats and Republicans, and even people who are Christians, who uh, get along in terms of believing the same things. You talk to one who's a Democrat, one who's a Republican, and it's like they hate each other. It's not even a disagreement on policies. It's those people are really bad. They are Satan's spawn. They are the worst. And both sides think that way about the other oftentimes. And it seems like we're increasingly divided as a country. And it's hard sometimes to see a way out of that. Likewise, morally, it just seems like we're going down the wrong path again and again. Like two weeks ago when the Super Bowl was on. Super Bowl's uh, an event that's watched by about a billion people throughout the world. Uh, watched by many children, millions of children during prime time. And they thought the most, impro most appropriate uh, halftime show was essentially a strip show. And you see these things, and it can get depressing, and we feel like we're hopeless and helpless, and we can't change the tides of the culture. But sometimes I think that maybe we focus a little bit too much on what's happening out there and not enough about what's happening in here and within our own church. I think part of the reason that we have trouble with this 
idea is that as a church or, or as a country, we've gone from being a predominantly Christian country to being not so much a Christian country. And that's kind of changed just in the last several years. For example, in about 1946, the number of people in the United States who would call themselves Christian was about 91%. And so if you look at that, it's kind of like, okay, the culture kind of is the church. And when you speak to the culture, it's almost like speaking to the church because nearly everyone, nine out of 10 people would say that there's Christians. And those numbers stayed fairly constant for a number of years. And even in 1990, about 30 years ago, 85% of Americans identified as Christians. Even 2001, 19 years ago, it was 81.6% of Americans. Even in 2012, just eight years ago, the number was 78%. Data from 2019 suggests that the number of, uh, the percentage of Christians in the United States, who people who identify themselves as Christians, is 65%. And if trends continue, it's, it's estimated that by 2035, there'll be more people who are not Christians in America than there are people who are Christians. And even among those 65%, we know that those are just people who say that they're Christian. It doesn't mean that they necessarily follow Christ or uh, follow what it means to be a biblical Christian. And so we have to understand that there's this huge separation, especially now, between the culture and between the church. We can no longer say that the church is the culture. We can no longer say that we're a predominantly Christian nation. Now we have to understand that there's a big separation between the church and the culture. And of course there always has been to some extent, but now the lines are being divided even more starkly. And we see throughout history and Israel's history that there's always a separation between God's people and between the other nations. We see in this passage with the Israelites, the separation is between the Israelites, the people of God, and the Philistines. Now, I have a question, a hypothetical question. Do you think that the Israelites expected the Philistines to act like Israelites? Do you think that they expected that the Philistines would follow the law, that they would be circumcised, that they would follow all their sacrifices and act like Israelites. They probably didn't expect that. They probably didn't think that that was going to happen because Philistines were Philistines. They had their own gods. And of course, there was a hope that some would come and convert to Judaism. But they were Philistines, and so they expected them to act like Philistines. And I think there's a lesson in there for us as the church of Jesus Christ, is sometimes we focus on what's out there, what we can't control, and we lament all that's happening out there, and we don't focus what we can control inside of us. See, I think we need to stop expecting the culture to look like the church, and we need to start expecting the church to look like God's people. We need to stop expecting people out there to act like Christians act like the people of God, and we need to start expecting that we as the church start acting like God's people, that we behave in accordance with the ways that God has taught us. Because any change that's going to happen in our culture, it's going to start with the church. Any change of spiritual, eternal significance, it's, it's going to start with the church. The church. 
And we see in this passage that the people of Israel have been harassed and are in service to the Philistines. And though the Ark of the Covenant is now with them, they're spiritually still far from God. But we see in this passage there's five things that these Israelites do to come back into right relationship with God. And we see that as they do these five things that God's spirit moves among the Israelites in ways that maybe he hasn't moved in years and years previous. And so these five things are things I think that we can take as a church, as individuals, and that if we do these things, I think that we can expect to see God's hand move in our lives and maybe ways that we haven't seen him move in years. And as God does those things in our life, I think that there's a ripple effect that can also affect the surrounding uh, culture around us. So there's five things. The first thing that the Israelites do is they mourn. Verse 2 says, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time past, some 20 years, and all of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. I mean, think about that. 20 years, it says they lamented after the Lord. Now, the word for lament can mean to follow or to be devoted to. But I believe also this could be referring to mourning the loss of God's presence. Now, they had gone through kind of a dark time near the end of the book of Judges and between uh, the time when Eli's sons were running the temple. And they'd experienced this spiritual darkness. And I believe now they're at a place where they're mourning that loss of God's presence. And they're like, we need God again. We need God's presence to return. We need God to act among us like he hasn't acted in years past. I think it's similar to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I mean, in what sense can mourning be good? Mourning is good when it's a mourning for God's presence, when it's acknowledgement we need God in our lives. We need God in our country again. Michael Wilkins, a scholar, writes this, The spiritual, emotional, or financial loss resulting from sin should lead to mourning and a longing for God's forgiveness and healing. This is described by the psalmist in Psalm 42, the sons of Korah. It says, as the deer pants for, water, for, for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go into the th- with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So in Psalm 42, the sons of Korah are lamenting the fact that the people around them are persecuting them, are trying to lead them away from God, and yet they affirm that even though the culture around them is leading them astray, they affirm that they long for God's presence even more. And they mourn the fact that they're not in the temple worshiping the true and living God. And I think if we're going to see God's spirit move among us in ways that he hasn't moved in years, I think that we need to start at the place of mourning. We need to realize and acknowledge that we miss his presence, that we want him in our lives, that we want him to move like he did in days of old. So that's the place we start with mourning, mourning the loss of God's presence, mourning what's happening around us. Second thing that they do is they repent. Verse 3 says, If you're returning to the Lord with all of your heart, 
Then put away the foreign gods and the asterisk from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. There's three things that Samuel says are required for the Israelites to do. To put away foreign gods, direct your heart to the Lord, and to serve him only. Now, the most trouble that the Israelites ever got into throughout their history is when they became like the nations around them. When they adopted the practices of other cultures, when they worshipped foreign gods. And sadly, they went there a lot. They worshipped other gods very often. And now we think about idolatry and we think about what they did where, you know, they would maybe conquer another people and they would worship their gods. And that's easy for us to understand. That's an idol made of wood or stone, a statue, a pole, as described in this passage, the asterisk pole. And so that's easy for us to understand, but sometimes it's harder for us to understand what idolatry is in our culture. An idol is anything that takes the place of God in our life. It's anything that we look to to satisfy us other than God, to give us ultimate satisfaction. It's saying, I don't have time to, to spend with God. I don't have time to devote to a relationship with God because, fill in the blank, that because, that's your idol, that's your thing keeping you from God. I, I don't have time to worship with God's people because, fill in the blank. So I don't know how to deal with this, so rather than turning to God, I'm going to turn to fill in the blank, a person, a practice, an addiction, whatever that thing is, that's your idol. I know that God says I shouldn't be doing this, but I don't feel like I could be happy if I don't do this. And so we keep doing that thing, whatever that thing is, that's our idol. So about a month ago, maybe a little bit more, I went down to south of Buffalo and I brought my camera and I was looking for a snowy owl. And uh, I went down this path, and on the path, there was water on both sides. And I, I never found the owl that day, but uh, as I was going down the path, I saw some ducks on my left-hand side, left-hand side of where I was walking. And I just kind of walked by, and I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. And they were lined up in, in this kind of cool formation. I was like, I've never seen ducks quite like that, quite in that formation. And they weren't like mallard ducks. They were kind of a more rare, I don't know what kind they were, but I wasn't really looking for them, so I thought, I'll take some pictures. And so I go down, there's, there's rocks off the path, and I go down the rocks, and I go and take some pictures, and I'm amazed because uh, they're, not, they're not flying away. And most of the time, anytime you get anywhere near uh, ducks, they fly away. I mean, even if you get it within a couple hundred yards. These ones didn't fly away, so I thought, that's pretty cool. I got some pretty good pictures. And then I, on the way home, I, uh, or later, I called my brother. Uh, my brother is also into birding. He's kind of a birding buddy. And I told him what happened. I was like, I saw these ducks. They were really cool. I'm not sure what kind of ducks they were, uh, but I got some pretty good pictures. And he's like, and I'm like, you know how ducks are usually, they're really skittish, and you can't even get close to them? They were like tame. They just stayed there. And I described how they were in this, these formations. And by the way, too, while I was there, there were some hunters there. And the hunters were there, and I'm thinking to myself, I hope the hunters don't hurt these ducks. And they saw me taking the pictures, and they're like, hey, how you doing? But they weren't shooting at the ducks, so I thought, that's good. 
Uh, so we talked about that. I told him I'd send him some pictures when I got home and edited the pictures. So I get home and I get out my computer and I put uh, the, st the memory stick into the computer. I start going through the, the pictures and I see something red on one of the ducks. It looked kind of like blood. And I kind of zoom in and look a little bit closer and I noticed it looked a little bit plasticky. Kind of like a decoy duck. They weren't real. That's why they weren't moving. That's why they were in such a perfect line. And I can only imagine what these hunters were thinking as I came up to them taking pictures of these plastic ducks. I think that kind of provides a clear picture of what idolatry it's li is like. It's kind of like chasing after a decoy. It's something that looks good from a distance, but when we get up close, it's something that destroys us, that keeps us from God. The thing is that idols never satisfy us. Christopher Wright says this, the worst thing about idols, as the Hebrew scriptures so tirelessly point out, is that they're utterly useless when you need them. We think that idols will satisfy us, but when we really need them, they fail us. We've seen this with the Philistines last week as we looked at the story about how they had conquered, they thought they conquered, the God of Israel brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of Dagon. And the people of the Philistines, they came, started breaking out with tumors and started dying and mice were overrunning their fields. And where was Dagon during that? Dagon was his face was down, the statue was broken, his arms were torn off, his head was decapitated, and he was useless before what was happening there. He was useless before the God of Israel. And so if we're going to see God's spirit move, we need to mourn. Second, we need to repent. We have to make sure our hearts are fully devoted to the Lord. Our hearts can't be divided following after the things of this world and also trying to follow after Christ. So we need to mourn, we need to repent. Third, the text shows us we need to believe. Verse 7 says, Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to, God, to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Now contrast how the Israelites handled this situation with how they handled it back in chapter 4. And back in chapter 4, first we see the Israelites go headstrong into battle. They're defeated by the Philistines. And then what do they do to try to, to win the battle? They bring the Ark of the Covenant and they think to themselves, if we bring God into this battle, then we'll win the victory. And so they try to turn God's hand and manipulate him and bring him into the battle. And the result is they lose. They lose severely. Now the situation is a little bit different. Now they realize where their help comes from. Now they realize that if they're going to be defeat this enemy, they need God to intervene on their behalf. I think in a similar way, if we're going to see a fresh movement of God in our lives, our churches, in our culture, we need to know where our help comes from. We need to know where our strength comes from because in our culture, usually we try to fix things ourselves first. A lot of times we don't want to ask someone else for help, even if it's asking God. And so even as Christians, when we're dealing with things in our life, sometimes our first response is we try to fix it in our own strength. We try to do it ourselves rather than believe that we can't win 
unless God is on our side, rather than calling upon him and inviting him to intervene in our life. The truth is, the cards are stacked against us. Everything in our culture is pushing us away from Christ, and unless he intervenes, there is no hope. There is no victory. I mean, that was the same thing that was true for the Israelites. The Israelites are subjected to the Philistines. We don't know the nature of that subjection, but they're subjected in some way to the Philistines, which indicates that the Philistines were much stronger than the Israelites. Otherwise, they wouldn't be subjected to, uh, the, the Israelites wouldn't be subjected to the Philistines. Also, we know that they've come to Mizpah to worship God. They're probably not ready for battle. They probably haven't, don't have swords and stuff ready to fight. They're coming to worship God, and now this Philistine army is coming towards them. Who knows what they're going to do? And rather than try to do that themselves, now they know where their help comes from. Now they call out to God. They no longer trust their own devices. So we need to mourn, we need to repent, we need to believe in God, we need to know where our help comes from. And then after that, we need to wait. Verse 10 says, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. So again, they sacrifice to the Lord, praying to the Lord, the army is coming, and they call out to God, and they've done the right things here. I mean, see... In, in chapter 4, they did all the wrong things, but here they do the right things. They mourn, they repent of their idols, they believe in God for the victory, and then the only thing left to do is to wait and see God move among them. And we see in this passage that God moves in a mighty way. Previously, in chapter 4, when they brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle, what did they do? They tried to recreate the situation in Jericho when God defeated the, uh, the people in Jericho years ago. They brought the Ark of the Covenant in, and what did they do? They shouted. They gave off a loud shout. But even though they shouted, they were soundly defeated by the Philistines. Here in this passage, they don't shout. It's God who shouts. God thunders from heaven. And as he thunders from heaven, it says in the text that the people panicked, they were confused, and then the Israelites defeated them. Because God is moving on their, their behalf. When we're doing the right things, when we're mourning the loss of the presence of God, when we repent, when we believe in God, God moves in our lives in ways that we maybe never expected, in ways that are beyond our imagination and beyond what we could ever accomplish on our own. He moves among us in powerful ways. We need to wait for his movement, believing that he has the power to accomplish whatever it is in our lives. And the cool thing about that is as God moves among us, often that's a catalyst to change those around us, to change our culture. But it has to start with us. It has to start with God's movement among us. The fifth thing that the Israelites do in this passage is that they remember. It says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. Samuel set up a stone that would be a reminder of the way that God had delivered them, the way that God had provided for them, the way that God had defeated the, the Philistines before them. And this was very important and very significant for the Israelites because the Israelites had a history of forgetting things really quickly. 
For example, remember how God led the, the Israelites out of Egypt and how he brought these plagues upon the Egyptians and showed his power in incredible ways and how God parted the Red Sea and they walked through on dry ground and, and then when the Pharaoh's army came through, it, the water enclosed Pharaoh's army and how God provided manna from heaven and he provided for the Israelites in so many different ways and then they get into the wilderness and they start to feel a test. And what do they do? They forget everything that's just happened. And they're like, we should have, we should have go back to Israel or to Egypt. I mean, why did God bring us out of here? Did he just bring us out of here to starve and to die of thirst? And so quickly after God had done all these things for them, they forgot what God had done. We see this in a number of other places in Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 18, it says this, you were, mind, we, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you're, you forgot the God who gave you birth. Also in the book of Judges, Judges 3, 7, it says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. I think all of us have a remarkable tendency to forget the things of God. Forget the things that God has provided for us. Forget the way that God has brought us through difficulties. And the funny part about that is sometimes we can remember grudges or hurts that we've experienced, and we can remember those for years or decades after they've happened. But when it comes to remembering the things that God has done for us, we are so quick to forget. I mean, God can provide for us in such an incredible way, and then the next day, it seems, it's like, what am I going to do? And we're filled with anxiety and wondering where God is, and God's like, I just provided for you yesterday. Why don't you trust in me to provide for you today? We need to remember the things that God has done for us, and this passage is a physical reminder a stone that's set up as a reminder that God had delivered them. Maybe for us, it is a similar thing. Maybe there's a physical reminder that we need to remind us of the ways that God has provided for us. I don't know what that might look like. Maybe it's a plaque on a wall. Maybe it's a bracelet. Maybe it's something that, we po that points us to the reality of what God has done. Maybe it's uh, keeping a note card with scripture verses on it. So it's always in the forefront of our mind that God is there for us and God provides for us. Psalm 103, 2 to 5 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And it says, And forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So the five keys to seeing God's spirit move among us Number one, mourn. Two, repent. Three, believe. Four, wait. And five, remember. Well, my son is uh, three months old, and thankfully he can't get into a lot of trouble yet, but I'm, I'm not really looking forward to that stage when uh, the kids become like house wreckers, where they just go and like destroy property for fun. Not really looking forward to that. But I remember sometimes when I did things like that when I was a kid. Um, like one day I decided I, I wanted people to remember me after we left our house. And so I went and wrote my name all over the walls and all over various objects. I know some kids will, 
you know, give their siblings haircuts or cut their own hair or do stuff like that. But there's one kid, his name was Leo, and he was two years old, and his mom was uh, showing him how to use a paper shredder. And uh, they were going through old bills and stuff, and she was showing him how to put the, the bills through the paper, paper shredder. One Sunday, his parents, Ben and Jackie, noticed that there was an envelope missing that contained $1,060. For the past year, they had been saving up money for season tickets uh, because they were uh, University of Utah football fans. And so they had been saving this money, and they looked all over the house, couldn't find, find it anywhere. And so uh, the husband, Ben, went to the garbage, looked in the garbage, and then finally Jackie went to the shredder, and she found that $1,060 in the envelope completely shredded up. She cried at first, she laughed, and wasn't a whole lot she could do. Of course, Leo didn't know any better. He thought he was helping. He thought he was just getting rid of the trash. But thankfully, they knew what to do after that. If this would have happened to me, I wouldn't know what to do. I'd probably just throw it out and what can you do? But there's a bureau called the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, and they have a entire division called the Mutilated Currency Division. It's devoted to redeeming burned, rodent-chewed, or deteriorating money, and it's free to the public. It handles about 30,000 claims each year and has recovered or redeemed $30 million so far. And so they sent that money in, in Ziploc bags, all torn up to this agency so that it might be redeemed. Some of us here, maybe we feel like our lives are kind of like been shredded up. Seems like we know that there's a value to them, but we don't know how to put the pieces back together. Now, if we don't know where to go to, then there's nowhere to go. But if we know where to go to, then God can redeem those pieces, that he can put our lives back together. He can move in our lives in ways that he's maybe never moved before. And as he moves in our lives personally, he'll also move in our church. And as he moves in our church, he also will move in our surrounding culture. But it all starts with knowing where to go. Knowing to go to the Father. And doing these five things. Mourning, repenting, believing, waiting, remembering. And as we do that, God will transform us and move in ways that we can't even imagine. We need to stop expecting the culture to look like the church. We need to start expecting that the church would look like God's people. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you're a God who we can call on in our time of need. We thank you that you're a God who can handle anything that we face in our life. We thank you that there's no one who's too far from your love. There's no one whose life is too shredded and too broken for you to put back together. Lord, I pray that we would turn to you with all of our hearts. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be undivided in our devotion to you, that we'd believe in your power, that we'd wait for you to act, and that when then when you do act, that we would remember and that the next day when a struggle comes, we'll have the faith to know that you'll be there for us today, tomorrow, forever. 
Lord, I pray that as we do these things, Lord, I pray that you'd move among us, change our hearts, heal our brokenness, change our church, change our culture as it fits you and your purposes. In Christ's name I pray, amen.